grab your bag of popcorn, slide that baby in the microwave, set it for two minutes and 30 seconds, settle in and get ready because you're listening to the Hacker Noon Podcast. My name is Amy Tom and today I am joined by Victor from Shiba and Matt from Couchbase. How are you guys doing today? Doing well. Excellent. It's only one day until weekend. That's a good Yes. Meal. Matt, can you tell us a bit about your role at Couchbase? Sure. So I am a senior director in engineering at Couchbase, which basically means I try to take what the product managers uh, say and turn it into reality. I have a couple different things in my portfolio. One is the stuff for cloud native, what we call cloud native engineering, which is integration into Kubernetes, Prometheus, Fluent, uh, D, Fluent Bit, that sort of thing. The other part is the components for making developers uh, productive. So that's things like SDKs and connectors if you're writing code in Scala or Java or Node.js or even .NET. That's part of our uh, my area. Uh, and then the other interesting thing I've done in the last um, year or two is we implemented distributed transactions in a really kind of unique way. So that's been a lot of fun. So that's what I do at, at Catchbase. And Victor, what about you at Shippa? I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> I, tend to cha- I, I tend to find my way within a company and do whatever makes sense. Probably right now, the closest description of what I'm doing would be developer advocate and managing the open source part of the story. And how did you get into that? Into uh, being developer advocate? Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, I'm not sure really. I think that I managed to get into one conference through some open source project that I was maintaining. They invited me. And then others started inviting me to speak and I like to travel for free and I love being in a hotel so that I don't need to clean after myself. So I just increased (laughs) my involvement in conferences at at that time. Ah, okay. But your background is in development. Yes, yes. I'm a software engineer, developer by nature. I don't develop anymore as much as as I used to, do a bunch of other things. But yes, if somebody asks me, what are you in general, not within Shippa, I'm a developer first and then everything else. Okay, cool. So I I believe that the listeners of the Hacker Noon podcast are somewhat familiar with Couchbase now, and we did interview a different Matt before, Matt Groves. So Victor, could you please tell us just a little bit about what Shippa does so we can get a background on what your expertise is in? Oh, you're not going to get my background in expertise from Shippa, but I'm <laughs> going to explain Shippa anyways. Okay. So, what, what Shippa is trying to do is create some sort of a platform or a layer on top of Kubernetes. And the main goal is to enable everybody in, in a company or a team or organization to use Kubernetes without screaming. Because really, to understand, to use Kubernetes directly, you need to spend months, if, if not more, in, in trying to figure it out. It's a very complex beast. And it's good that it's complex because that provides a lot of benefits but mostly for operations people, people close to the system. But then for everybody else, you need something much simpler. Eventually, developers just want to say, hey, uh, hey I want to deploy my application. That, 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 I, I don't know what that thing is there. I want it running. And we are trying to enable operators in a company to enable developers to do that instead of developers going back to those operators and say, hey, can you deploy my application? 
Uh, we, uh. we don't want to do that. We want to enable people in general. We all want to shift left and to do that, we need to simplify things for people who are not necessarily experts in everything. Because Yeah, it's cool is. stuff. It's one of those things where developers, they might like to run on Kubernetes, which is like eating sausage, but they don't want to have to know how to make the sausage in order to eat it. <laughs> so, that is yeah, a I mean, great analogy. If you go to a typical developer and say, do you want to run your stuff in Kubernetes? They will, they're going to say yes. And then if you say, okay, by the way, you need to understand what is a deployment and a service in a stateful set and a virtual service and Istio gateway, and you, it's impossible. So today I wanted to talk to you guys today about GitOps. So Victor, could you start off by telling me exactly what that is? Because I think that there's like kind of different definitions of this. I would define it as the acknowledgement that everything we do is defined as code. And then if you follow from there, you quickly realize that code needs to be in Git because that's the only place where we can store code reasonably today. So GitOps is about defining everything as code, storing it in Git, and then having some sort of a process that will always synchronize the desired state that what you stored in Git with the actual state, which can be your cluster, it can be infrastructure, it can be many different things. So it's about storing everything in Git, defining everything is code, storing it in Git, and making sure that it's always synchronized there between Git and whatever is running somewhere. Okay. And Matt, what is the difference between GitOps and, say, DevOps? Oh, to me, GitOps is, if I were to say DevOps, to me, that really means that person who lives in the middle, sometimes in some organizations, it's even called an SRE, reliability engineer. It's that person that kind of understands enough about dev to be able to, you know, diagnose and fix bugs and then enough about ops to understand the infrastructure that it's going to be deployed on. The difference between that and GitOps though, GitOps is where Victor was going. It's more declarative. This is a, this is about how do we go about that process? Like you can do DevOps. I don't know if you're familiar with the terms imperative and declarative, but imperative is I'm telling you to go to the store. So I'm going to say, go down the street, turn left, then turn right. And then declarative is go to the store and you figure it out. And so the in the GitOps case, we're typically saying we're taking all of the things that we want to do and put it into a Git repository. And that represents the state of the system that we might push to test or uh, production or something along those lines. So that's kind of how I see the difference between the two. Uh, okay. If I may interrupt, there is also yeah. a distinction between something being a technical practice and something being an idea or a movement. So GitOps is a technical practice. This is how we accomplish something. Same like CICD is a technical practice and so on and so forth. Now I put DevOps closer to, to the same bucket as Agile. It's an idea that we should all work together, development and operations, instead of having silos. It doesn't really prescribe how you do stuff. Nobody in DevOps will tell you, hey, those are the steps, A, B, C, and then you're DevOps. There is no such thing. Yeah, totally. If you go back to the 60s, you would see things like developers do their developing and then they throw it over the wall to operations who actually run the machine uh, and run it in production. But really here in this modern world, developers, pe people want, uh, we can be a lot more efficient if we just all work together on the same uh, platform. We still have segmentation of responsibilities but and different expertise, but it is useful for a developer to be in the loop from operations because they'll write better code if they know that they might be paged at 3 a.m. <laughs> right. So. Mm -hmm. 
So if one were to take on GitOps as a technical operation model, what is the diff- how does it differ from like a before and after scenario before using GitOps and after? What I'd say is before in before GitOps, what you would do is you'd imagine I as an app manager or developer architect in a line of business, somebody says, hey, I need you to build this thing. Here's the funk spec. And then I'd go to my issue tracker and I'd ask IT, can you provision a bunch of hardware for me? And then I'd wait a week, maybe two, maybe three. Somebody ships equipment, sets up VMs. Meantime, I might be able to do some stuff, but I'm really waiting for all that stuff. In a GitOps world, what happens differently is I just sit down and I might clone something or I have existing knowledge about how to represent the infrastructure I want. And I just start putting that into a Git repository, committing it one after another. Then maybe I run it locally on my laptop on Kind, obviously at a smaller scale. Kind is Kubernetes and Docker. It's something I, I think is really cool and is uh, getting adopted these days. And then, and then I might have a development cluster that my IT org has already provisioned. And I have the permissions necessary to be able to just push that to that development uh, cluster that exists. So I didn't have to go, you know, get get somebody to provision an area. There was just a cloud. It might be a public cloud that my company is uh, leasing time on. It might be a private cloud. Doesn't really matter. Just mm-hmm. uh, the idea that I can my infrastructure as code locally, and then I can push that to that development environment. I'm up and running. I don't have to wait or mess around with anything. And then eventually I get the opportunity to say, push that to production. And it's, and it's a lot clearer when you go from one to the other. There's not uh, an operations person who needs to know how to get the specific code from one environment to the other environment, how to roll across versions. It's just all described in that Git repository. Now I'm making it sound a little overly simplistic. With databases, mm-hmm. it can be a little complicated because they're stateful and so forth. And how do you go through database migrations and whatnot? But we find that it's with some orgs, it's just, it reduces friction. They can just get moving that much faster. They don't have to wait for IT. There's just a normal process by which you describe the infrastructure you want, And then you tell the environment that you're developing on, this is what I want. And it gives it to you. It also avoids having superheroes. When you have a person in a company that just clicked 75 different buttons and then a cluster appears and application is deployed and something goes wrong. And then you say, what the heck is happening? Who did what? How? When? Uh, I I have no idea. And then, hey, John, he's, he's on vacations, by the way. Uh, (laughs) We don't know. But it's, it's about always recording what you're doing and yeah. that record rec- that information just happens to be in it yeah and if john leaves the organization then everything is documented so you're good to go yeah so if i were to set up a server and listen for git webhooks and it pulls and rebuilds and restarts the by the process is this considered git ops the difference, if you remember from the initial, from the beginning, when I described GitOps in, in only a few words, one mm-hmm. of the things I said is that the desired state, what is in Git, and the actual state is always in sync, or almost always in sync. It cannot be literally yeah. always, but almost always. Now, if you do a webhook, then you will notify some process, hey, I, I want to apply those changes, whatever those changes are, and that process will do it. But if something happens in the meantime, let's say that your cluster gets destroyed by a random event or somebody does something to change that state, that will not be 
put back to the desired state automatically simply because there is nothing monitoring that uh, those differences. So right. we are trying to go away from the webhook, which is a one-time event, and uh, have processes that are more or less continuously monitoring those two states and making sure that they're in sync. Got it. Okay, I think I have a better understanding about what GitOps is now. So to relate this back to databases, Matt, if I am living this GitOps lifestyle, how does this relate to databases? Yeah, and, and databases are a little more complicated, mainly because of that thing where they're stateful, right? Uh, meaning that they're holding on to the the data uh, for the application. So let me describe a little bit about how I see it and and the state of the art these days would be, we would use something like Kubernetes or OpenShift as an orchestration platform. And so what Couchbase, what we do is we allow you to describe the environment that you would expect. That might be a Couchbase cluster, that might be the buckets and the the specific users and roles and role bindings, the kinds of things that you need for your application you can describe those as Kubernetes objects inside a repository. So usually that means that they're in the form of YAML that are sitting in that repository, sitting right next to your code. And so then when you're ready to run, the example I was giving earlier, if you're running on your laptop, what you can do is basically CD into a directory and kubectl apply a series of files, and you now have a running database in a matter of you know seconds. There is a little bit of magic in there, that little bit of magic is we have something called a, a Kubernetes operator, and we're pretty proud of the one that we have. We have we have a lot of interesting capabilities in it, but the, that what that operator does is it listens for when those objects are created. So you can think of that operator as taking all the human intelligence of what it would mean to normally operate Couchbase and turning it into a piece of software and then deploying that to Kubernetes. And so you have a set of what are, are called custom resource definitions. So that's where we've defined a Couchbase cluster, a Couchbase bucket, and so forth. So as a user, all you have to do is define them, get the operator deployed. And then when you push it, when you kubectl apply that YAML, the operator picks it up and says, oh, okay, I know what state that user wants. I'm going to make it. So pretty cool. The It gets a little more complicated when you get to production. You want to do things like upgrades, but operator knows our operator knows how to do stuff like that too, which is pretty cool as well. Okay, cool. Victor, do you believe that we are at a place where Kubernetes, it's safe to store data there? Uh Yes, I think we are safe is a strange word, really. <laughs> and it really depends on how far an organization is. So if let, I, I'm going to try to answer it slightly differently. If, okay. if I start from scratch, right, uh, today, let's say that I just form a new company, I would almost certainly run a database in, a Kubernetes, in Kubernetes, assuming that I want to manage it myself. I might use a service, but I'm going to park that aside, right? Now, for everybody else who is not starting today, it's difficult to answer simply because there's a lot of things that we built in the last 20 years and how portable that is from both technology perspective and process perspective and stuff like that to Kubernetes would be a huge topic in itself, right? But yes, I, I think it is. It is relatively safe. And what if I wanted to use a different kind of orchestration than Kubernetes containers? Could I use something like NixOS containers? I think you would be wasting your time. 
to be honest. <laughs> Simply because Kubernetes is is here to stay. We know that now. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I'm saying that, not because Kubernetes is awesome or because it's better or worse than something else, for a simple reason, because almost every single software company in the world is heavily invested in Kubernetes. So everybody has such a huge vested interest in Kubernetes that it, even if tomorrow we discover that Kubernetes is not a good idea, we're going to have to live with it for years to come. That is certain. So, and everything else died. And when I say died, nothing really dies in software industry. We still have mm-hmm. mainframe and COBOL and all that stuff. But when we are talking where we are, what are we going to adopt? Kubernetes is really the only sensible option today. Well, Amy, Amy I got to say, as a NixOS fan, I, I feel a need to defend NixOS. In fact, I have it on this, <laughs> this little box over here. But I, I would also say this is where I don't think it's an either or. Nix derivations is a way to describe how to build build your software and run it in an environment. Totally cool. That said, when we're talking Nix, NixOS is really about a, and Nix derivations tend to be about a single system. And I know there's there, there's lots of integration for doing things like uh, Docker containers and so forth. But when you're talking about Kubernetes, you're really talking about what's the operating system for data center orchestration, if you will. And so I run Kubernetes on my NixOS machine locally. Partially, that's just so I can keep my 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 desktop machine free for doing things like video calls. <laughs> but <laughs> But it's, it's also just a really useful way to do things. And you can get a blend between the two. So anyway, I just don't, I don't want, I don't want us to offend any NixOS fans. There, there are some, <laughs> yeah. there's some overlap. And then there's, there's, uh, there's definitely, uh, there are definitely a few places where the two work uh, really hand in hand. Yeah, yeah. I think like a common developer a- mindset to think of is like that Kubernetes is overkill for a lot of projects or something like mm. that. That's probably because of networking. I'm dedicated to Kubernetes, and I will say Kubernetes is an overkill. Um, Mm -hmm. But that's because we're still in very early stages, and we need that simplification layer on top of Kubernetes. The same thing is if we would be talking, I don't know, 20 years ago, and when we were still trying to figure out how to deal with the virtual machines on a very low level, on OS level, or in like until 10 years ago when we were trying to figure out how to create containers without Docker, I would say it's overkill. But eventually we are going to get to the state where that is simple. That is simply implementation detail that nobody even cares about. I'm hoping to see a day where actually people will not know even know that there is Kubernetes behind something. Just like mm-hmm. most people do not compile their own Linux distribution anymore. You just take a yeah. Nix OS, right? And say, hey, okay. Somebody Great. did it for Done. me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. So once a developer has GitOpsified their database, then what other considerations do they have to think about? What else does a, a developer need to think about once they've GitOpsified their environment? Probably they're going to have to think about what, how do they break down that particular application? There's, there's a phrase that I learned from my CTO at an old company. It tends to be when applications come into contact with the network. Or, and these days, the network might be public cloud or private cloud. They tend to bro- break up into their component pieces. So they're going to have to figure out how do they take that monolith and and maybe break it up into component services. The other thing is that, and then there comes a challenge with that. Then the other part of the challenge is like, oh, now I need to know 
what is going to my service level. I'm trying to provide a user a response time really quickly, but that response time might actually be a function of lots of different processes calling each other processes on this orchestrated network. So you might need to understand at the outermost level, like, how am I doing with respect to my service level? And then at an inner level, what is actually, what are the constituent pieces of, of getting me to that service level, even all the way down to the database? And this is an area I've been, you know, people that know some of my other work have been passionate about. So that's where we found open telemetry to be a really cool thing to add to the lower level parts of the system. So we can see in detail, what is it of all these database calls, which ones are not, are maybe close to not meeting the service level and what's the cause for that. And sometimes it's actually infrastructure, sometimes it's something else. And then other things like monitoring, which in CNCF, which is the Cloud Native Compute Foundation, get into things like Prometheus as top-level projects, being able to monitor and understand that. If you take that comparison again, if you were to go back to, I don't know, I'll say 15 years ago, 20 years ago, almost the three-tier architecture sort of thing, it was always pretty easy. It's like either the app or the client or the database. But now you have the database is distributed like Couchbase and the app is distributed amongst multiple microservices and we get lots of advantages for that, lots of flexibility, but mm -hmm. it brings new problems. And for those new problems, we've got to bring new tools and understanding your logging, understanding your monitoring, understanding your tracing between those. So things like FluentD and Prometheus and OpenTelemetry are the things I would think of that an app developer is going to have to plan for as they get out uh, to this world. Okay. And I'm curious, what, uh, do you have in Couchbase, and I'm asking this because I'm not informed, are you already implementing OpenTelemetry as part of the database? That we I are. Just pick it, it up or? Yeah, and you probably know some of the history on this. So we got involved with the open tracing community a couple of years ago. And then in CNCF, the open tracing community and open census decided to get together and both commit suicide together and be reborn as open telemetry. Uh, and that, that's not, I, I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but yeah, so we implemented open tracing. We start, we, we actually had an experiment in the server level and we did the cluster level and then we did, did it pretty deep in all of the SDKs. And then we've carried that forward. So we have open telemetry support coming up, officially supported, but it's already in a number of the SDKs. And then we actually pull some telemetry from the cluster and we'll put that into tags and we are looking into how can we carry that deeper into the system in the future. So we can do some pretty cool things. Like we can do things like identify, oh, the, the total system is slow. This distributed system is slow because that one node is slow. And why is that one node slow? Then you might have to dig down a little deeper uh, to figure it out. Or what sometimes people do in this uh, modern world, I'm sure you're familiar with this, Victor, it, like, that node is slow. I'll just throw it away. It's cheap. <laughs> Get the new one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we're doing stuff like that right now. And, and uh, we've got we've got some cool things coming with some implementation of FluentBit that'll consolidate our log story a little bit and uh, and then make it easier for people to integrate. And how does CI CD play into this? If you're asking about in relation to GitOps. Yeah. The, and this is, I, I believe, hard for people to understand is that the role of CICD or pipelines doing CICD is not anymore to perform some actions like, hey, I'm going to deploy, let's say, Couchbase operator into my cluster by executing kubectl. Now the role of CICD pipelines is that to change the 
Git repository that defines that operator, modify it, or do whatever it needs to do with that Git repo, and then let some other tools make sure that manifest, that definition in the Git repo is synchronized with the cluster. So it's almost as if neither humans nor CI, CD pipelines have access to the cluster anymore, but the only thing that they can do is push changes to Git and then let the cluster figure out what to do with it. Okay, so can I use a CI server to orchestrate conversions in the cluster? You can, but you shouldn't. You should basically be controlling uh, either manually yourself or through pipelines what is stored in Git. That, at least that's a general idea. Now, how far we can get with that idea and whether we will ever be 100% there, that would be a separate discussion. But you don't converge anything with a cluster from a pipeline. You converge, you change your desires by expressing them in Git. Okay, 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 got it. Okay, cool. So Matt, I believe that one of the advantages here is scalability, which kind of makes sense, but is it magic? <laughs> how does it, how? Uh, yeah, is it uh, is it magic scaling dust that you sprinkle on yeah. Kubernetes and then the database just scales? Yeah, it's it turns out it's not quite that simple. So there are a, a few things that that work really well here. So in the Kubernetes ecosystem, there are one of the one of the areas that we've been working on recently is auto scaling. Like the, the desired state, if you will, is Victor wants to be able to write an app, deploy it fall asleep, wake up the next morning, find that he's doubled his number of users and his cluster automatically grew to handle all of that workload. So this is where where GCP and AWS are off uh, adding new capabilities to their public clouds. Google uh, recently uh, came out with a with autopilot, which allows it to add things. And Victor has a great a video on uh, comparing that to AWS Fargate, if I recall correctly. Mm. And the and so those are things that allow you to actually add resources, add infrastructure in response to demand. However, this is the tough part, right? If you start talking about a database. Because it's stateful, we can't just add resources. We actually have to possibly move some data around inside uh, that world. So what we've been doing most recently, and we shipped this in our, our last release, uh, the 2.1 release, and we've got some other stuff coming up in the next release to, to make it even better, is we work with a couple of things. There's something in Kubernetes called the horizontal pod autoscaler. And there's also a concept uh, that's implemented different ways called cluster autoscaling. And so you can think of this as what if Victor writes his app, deploys, it's amazingly successful, and, and he, uh, overnight new people come on, they sign on, it, it has that hockey stick uh, kind of thing, he's going to be rich soon. And uh, what happened is uh, he defined, a, say, a metric to say that when it gets to this certain amount of CPU level or network utilization or memory utilization, I want the system to scale. So that sounds really easy, but in order to make that happen, we have to, we have our operator orchestrating with the horizontal pod autoscaler. So the horizontal pod autoscaler will say, hey, I'm above a threshold on this metric. You need to make yourself bigger. And then the operator needs to say, okay, hang on, I'm going to make myself bigger. So it'll grow the size of the cluster. Then what happens is the operator says, hey, I want a new pod out here. And then the Kubernetes cluster has to say, anti-affinity, I don't have anywhere to schedule this pod. And so it goes back to cluster auto-scaling. So say you're running on something that could be Fargate or GCP, but say you're running on something like GCP with autopilot, 
GCP will just automatically add a new node to the Kubernetes cluster. And now we have a place to schedule that pod. We can rebalance the data that's core to what we do at Couchbase. Online operations of the system will rebalance that cluster. Now we have new capacity and just let it keep running. And then we can let the horizontal pod autoscaler know okay, we did our job. We're, not, we're up to that new scale. You may proceed to watch those thresholds. So it's pretty cool stuff, but it's, it's also something that you got to be a little cautious about in that you need to plan for it a little bit, right? You need to know what those metrics are. You need to know that, that when you make those changes, you might actually have an impact on those metrics, right? Moving data actually costs some resources itself, but eventually you end up at the right place. And that's where we've been doing a lot of work to make sure that uh, we have the kinds of use cases laid out, the kinds of scenarios that users are going to run into to be able to scale their cluster. But at the end of the day, you get something pretty cool. If you were to go back to even just five, six years ago, it would have been really hard to achieve this. It would be possible, but it would have been really hard to achieve it. Now it's pretty easy to say in a public cloud or even in a private cloud environment, if you have sufficient resources, just tell the system when you pass this threshold, add resources. You'll probably still want a ceiling, right? Victor doesn't want his bill to go too high. <laughs> yeah. I mean, basically, what you're describing to me reminds me of the Word documents that I had 20 years ago, operational manuals, playbooks, yeah. that uh, you would be sitting and watching monitor some, uh, your monitor with some metrics and data and stuff like that. And then when certain things happen, then you would say, open, open. You're, you had it printed at that time. Open and then <laughs> Page 27, I do this, and then I jump to page 55, and I do this. Basically, at least that's how I see it. Operators are automating or converting those playbooks into code that can do the same things depending on the situation. And the trick is really to figure out what are the situations that trigger certain actions, right? Yeah, that was back when everybody had that fishbowl monitoring data center with the wall of screens. Exactly. No, nobody has that. I think we all just look at our phones or something. What's the problem? Why nobody does it? Because of Netflix. Now there are more entertaining things to watch than those monitors. It could be, yeah. Okay, cool. So it, can anyone write an operator for a database and get the same effect? Or just, do you have to have like specialized knowledge in this? Yeah, so... The, it, within the operator community, and this was something that kind of came out of CoreOS, I'm, I'm probably not going to remember the levels exactly, but they have different levels of operators. So the idea is I might have an operator that knows to, let's take MySQL as an example. Writing an operator that knows how to start and stop MySQL is super easy. Writing an operator, but... If you do that, as an example, I can tell it scale one, scale 40, and that it's not going to know what to do with that deployment. Scaling out MySQL, my yeah, you can certainly come up with a number of different architectures for what MySQL means, like with the sharded replicas, one of our competitors does. Or you can have a database that's really designed to scale out. And that's what Couchbase is. We're designed to scale out. Mm -hmm. And for us, writing an operator, it was a matter of taking what Couchbase is already capable of and then wetting that up to the reconciliation loop that you would have in an operator, which, which is a technical term for saying the user is going to make changes to the system 
And then I want the, the database to be able to, to carry those out. So there are five different operator levels and we're at a level five operator with auto scaling. And so that, that means that we do not only the monitoring, we have Kubernetes events that we expose. We're like, if you were to write a really basic operator, all it knows how to do is start and stop MySQL, as an example. I could do that in an afternoon, but really what you want is something cloud native is you want it to have events propagate through Kubernetes. You want to be able to monitor the state. You want to be able to monitor when a state change occurs. You want to be able to have the system react to different thresholds and failures within in the environment. Some of that you get for free, but yeah, it's super simple to write a basic operator. But you really need something like Couchbase to be able to write a really good operator to be able to really be cloud native, in my opinion. And this can be private, public, or hybrid cloud. Yeah, absolutely. Back to the topic of GitOps, that's a question of where are you deploying that state that's in your repository? If it's my on-premise OpenShift uh, cluster, I can totally do that there. If it's public cloud GKE, I could totally do that there. And then there, there are lots of... Lots of hybrid options, we'll put it that way. Actually, uh, one hybrid option is you can even, with Couchbase, you can even mix the two. So one of the things that we have in Couchbase is something uh, called cross-data center replication. Sometimes we refer to it as XDCR, which I always find funny because it takes almost as long to say XDCR as it does to say cross-data center <laughs> replication. But the, the, with cross-data, you, you can actually set up, maybe I, have, I, I, I can have my Asia data center on AWS and it's just receiving replicated stuff from my on-prem data center with Catrace's cross data center replication. And I can actually describe that replication in, in my deployment, in my Git repository. It's just a kubectl apply and it's good to go. And what if I'm managing a non-cloud-based infrastructure? With GitOps? Yeah. Is that possible? It is. It's just yeah. that... The tooling is not that mature or even good or even existing. So you yeah. will need to <laughs> do a lot of things for yourself. And I think that builds to what I said before, that now everybody's focused on Kubernetes from software vendor perspective. And since GitOps is a new thing, then nobody yet brought the same things for not Kubernetes, simply because there is not much interest, I will say, even commercially or, or from community demand and stuff like that. So. Can you do it? Yes. Easily? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, if you were to go back to jumpstart or upstart, I could imagine somebody saying, okay, I'm going to write a bunch of scripts and stick them in there. And then I'm going to have something uh, run a webhook and execute it. To me, that's similar to, uh, to what you were saying about operators, right? Yes, I can do something like that. I can have a cron job in my Linux server that will every few every five minutes clone the code and then compare it with something and do something. Yes, I can do that. But then I will realize probably after a few weeks that it's not actually a couple of days work and it's just looked. And then a year later, I'm going to rip my hair out because uh, I'm still nowhere and things like that. And, and that's where solutions like you're not talking about couch base, but that applies to everything. It's simply, you shouldn't, right? You should focus on what your business is and your business is not really to write database operators, to write Git frameworks and all those things. Your business is whatever your business is and you just pick the platform or a tool or a place where uh, it's best for that business and use case to run. It's as simple as that. I think. 
Yeah, the, the other thing is that uh, uh, a couple of other things have converged here. One, one of the buzz terms of maybe three or four years ago was software-defined networks. Technically, they were always software-defined, right? Mm-hmm. This was things like uh, Kubernetes as an orchestration platform has pulled stuff like storage and networking into the orchestration. And that's good and bad. The bad part is people are like, oh, why do I have to deal with all this stuff? The good part, though, is you no longer have to have a separate team to deal with all that stuff. The the different storage providers, the CSI plugins and the CNI plugins, they just, they expose their capabilities as objects with the rest of the infrastructure. So that's pretty yeah. cool to me. Okay, cool. So thank you very much, guys, for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. I think this was a great discussion that we had. Victor, where can we find you and Shippa online? Shippa.io and me is, you can find me on Twitter at vfarsic and LinkedIn, just, I don't know, Google Victor Farsic and you'll find me somewhere. (laughs) Okay, sounds good. Matt, where can we find you and Couchbase? Yeah, Couchbase, of course, is at couchbase.com and you'll see me helping people out on forums.couchbase.com a lot. And then this is one one thing that Victor and I, I guess, have in common is we both have unique names. I'm pretty sure I, I am one of two Matt Engine Thrones on the planet or on Twitter. I'm just I-N-G-E-N-T-H-R. Quick historical note, that was my original Unix username back at Ooh. the university. So it's my Twitter handle and it's hard to spell and nobody understands it, but it's uh, stuck. <laughs> so yeah, you, so you can find me on Twitter or, or on the Couchbase forums. If I was going to go back to an original username, my Twitter handle would be dogs underscore pups underscore Amy. <laughs> <laughs> what is it now? Is it the same now thing but without no, underscores? Now it's Amy M. Tom. <laughs> Uh, it's a little more refined these days you've gone professional (laughs) i see how it is yes okay thank you very much everybody if you like this episode don't forget to subscribe and share it with your friends you can find us at hacker noon on linkedin twitter and instagram and i will see everybody next week thank you very much thanks amy